On August 23rd, 1973, a strange event took place at Sweden. It was a bank robbery in the capital, Stockholm. The criminals held some host, uh, employees as hostages, demanded money, and a getaway car. The world fixed their eyes on the unfolding drama. And what happened over the next few days was disturbing. It's not that anyone was killed, no one was tortured. The captors and the four captives began to develop a friendship and a bond. One gunman provided a jacket to a hostage and comforted her after a bad dream. He then allowed another lady suffering from claustrophobia to walk outside of the vault tied to a 30-feet rope. She said later, I remember thinking he was very kind to allow me to leave the vault. Soon they were all on a first-name basis. Later, the police commissioner was allowed access to check up on the hostages. Oddly enough, they were hostile to him. They feared the law enforcers more than the law breakers. Then as the tensions escalated, one of the robbers threatened to shoot a captive in the leg. She recounted later how kind I thought he was for saying it was just my leg he would shoot. She then tried to convince her fellow hostage to take the bullet. It's just in the leg. About five days later, the police threw tear gas into the vault and the perpetrators surrendered. No one was hurt. At the doorway, the convicts and hostages embraced, kissed, and shook hands. This was such a weird scene that the police began suspecting one employee was secretly working with the robbers. Another survivor asked a psychiatrist afterwards, is there something wrong with me? Why don't I hate them? But this phenomenon has been labeled the Stockholm Syndrome, yet it's very different from other psychological disorders. There's no definitive treatment or cure for it. At times, victims not only buy into the lies of the predators, they also surrender their hearts to them and even take their side. It also happens between people in the church and false teachers who mislead them. First, they scratch your itchy ear. Next, they corrupt your hearts. We get near wolves in sheep's clothing, and soon enough, we embrace the cuddly wolf and expose our necks. We walk in the counsel of the ungodly, and before we know it, we stand in the path of sinners and sit in the seat of the scornful. And like the Stockholm counterpart, this kind of spiritual problem can get messy. Recovery can take time. We must identify disordered affections in us, expose the idols of our hearts, and redirect misplaced sympathy for enemies. I've learned in my relative short time as a pastor, and the more experienced ones have told me the same. Persuasion or dissuasion 
is not only an effort of logic. There's more to it. And I think the Bible supports this idea. Now, we see in the scriptures that Paul is certainly capable of making logical and cogent assertions. We see them in the first part of Galatians, that is for much of chapters 1 and 2. Just picture Paul in the courtroom, looking like Atticus Finch, Matlock, or Mickey Holler. He's well prepared. Paul builds a strong case, defense case for his own independent authority. He testifies to the supernatural origins of his message. He refutes his enemies with solid evidence. He convinces the judge and jury that the false teachers are wrong about him. And then in chapter one, uh, chapter 3 and up to chapter 4, verse 11, we see Paul the theologian at the pulpit, in a sense. He weaves together insights and quotations from scriptures. He raises questions. He anticipates objections. He does all this to defend the contents of the gospel and protect the Galatians. Paul is exemplary here. We ought to imitate how he processes and presents his thoughts biblically and logically. But here's something else. From ancient times, philosophers like Aristotle have studied the art of persuasion. They conclude it's not only the logos, the patterns of reasoning. We must consider also the ethos, the moral character of the one speaking. Furthermore, there's the speaker's ability to tap into the pathos, the emotions of the audience. Whether Aristotle was part of Paul's formal education or not, we don't know. But as you read about Paul in Acts and read from Paul in his letters, we see he's more than a man of reason. There's emotion, passion, frustration, affection, pride, and joy. See the tears from his eyes. Feel his deep concern for all the churches, his continual prayer on their behalf. This is what it means to be a true pastor. Paul channeled everything within him, brain and heart, intellect and feelings, to persuade his audience to follow Christ. And so let's see how he does that in today's passage. We turn now to Galatians 4, 12 to 20. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take our pew Bible with you as a gift from us to you. And in the pew Bible, you'll find Galatians 4 in page 812. Page 812. Galatians 4, 12 to 20. Brethren, I urge you to become like me. For I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? 
where I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is born in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, where I have doubts about you. Structurally, this passage stands out in Galatians 4. Falling on the heels of verse 11, you can count plenty of first-person singular pronouns. You got the eyes and you got the me's. We did see a lot of these back in chapters 1 and 2, but that's to be expected in an autobiographical defense. For much of chapters 3 and 4, Paul doesn't insert himself into his arguments, but now here he is in today's passage. He begins with this affectionate address, brethren, in verse 12. He voices his doubt about them in verse 20, which echoes the fear he expressed in verse 11. But this section is distinct, but it's not parenthetical. It's essential, not secondary, in his defense of the gospel. Here, Paul knows that a warm heart-to-heart should accompany good arguments. After all, he's not some recluse, ivory tower monk writing a theological treatise. He's a concerned pastor writing a letter to his spiritual brethren and children. And whether you're a pastor or not, we must all be vigilant against the syndrome of spiritual deception. To develop immunity to uh, false teachers, I encourage you to incorporate these two safeguard principles. One, imitate those who humbly preach the gospel of Christ. Imitate those who humbly preach the gospel of Christ. That's verses 12 to 16. Two, encourage consistent zeal for conformity to Christ. Encourage consistent zeal for conformity to Christ. That's verses 17 to 20. First, imitate those who humbly preach the gospel of Christ. Imitation is a key task of discipleship. It's something every spiritual child should do. We must have and follow our spiritual fathers. If you're a professing believer and you have no one to guide and help you spiritually, join a church that loves the Bible and seek out a role model there. Consider joining our church. You could start with the leaders once you join. As Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. But it doesn't have to be an official leader. Look for a mature believer who will say to you, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
We know from the depth and the breadth of his ministry, the fruit of his missionary work, that Paul's definitely worthy of imitation. But here in verse 12, it's not Paul's impressive resume that inspires the Galatians. It's his humility to become like them. He says, become like me, for I became like you. So how was Paul able to relate to them like this? Now, it's true that humility is an action. It's something we must do according to God's will. But it's also true that humility is something God produces in us through trials and difficult times. So among the Galatians, Paul was not only intentionally humble, he was humbled through a humbling situation. But most of us here know that there's nothing more humbling than a hospital experience. Mine was the hip fracture from a car accident from more than 10 years ago now. Everything about this ordeal was humbling. Pride takes a hit. Slipping on ice on the way to church and the head-on collision with the tree. Not a good Sunday. Cared for like a helpless child by a first responder. The nurses and the doctors. Sleeping like 20 hours a day. Pain meds and blood thinners to get me through recovery. Unable to drive for months due to non-weight-bearing status. Grueling physical therapy just to get back to normal. But I never felt completely normal again. Paul himself was humbled by his own humbling, hospital-like experience. You go back to Acts 13, you'll see what I'm talking about. It recounts Paul's first missionary journey. Paul with Barnabas and John Mark have just finished going through the island of Cyprus from Seleucia to Paphos. Next, they sailed and came to a major stop at Perga in Pamphylia in the southwest Mediterranean coast of Turkey. And we read in Acts 13.13 that John Mark abandoned them abandoned them and returned to Jerusalem. Like, why did John Mark do that? Burnout, cold feet. Some believe that the most recent events at Cyprus were too much for him. But there's probably more to it than that. Arriving at Perga and Pamphylia, the original plan might have been to move eastward toward Ephesus. Paul, however, faced some sudden major physical ailment. It must have been so bad that Mark wanted the team to quit the mission and return home. Paul and Barnabas wanted to keep going. So what exactly happened to Paul? There are at least three theories. The famous archaeologist William Ramsey thinks that he contracted malaria. It was common in that region with its marshy lowlands. Paul climbed 3,600 feet up to the high country near Pisidian Antioch to recover. And that's how he met the Galatians at first. William Breda, another scholar, his guess is epilepsy. And take a look at that word reject in verse 14. It can be taken to mean spit out. At that time, people believed spiritual forces caused epileptic conditions, and spitting was a ritualistic way to avert the evil eye of spirits 
and exorcise demons. The Galatians, however, were not repulsed by Paul. They welcomed them, according to this theory. Another third guess is based on verse 15. And look at the second half of that verse where it says, For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Paul also says later in chapter 6, verse 11, See what... See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Some conclude from these verses that Paul suffered from ophthalmia or some eye disease of some sort. If eye transplant was a possible surgical option, Paul saying that the Galatians would have gladly done it for him. There's no way to conclude definitively Paul had one, two, or all of these problems, or something else entirely. There are other questions too. Was it a flare-up of his thorn in the flesh? Or was it some one-time isolated uh, experience, incident? Well, we don't have to solve this medical mystery to understand the point of this passage. Some unexpected physical infirmity led Paul to the region of Galatia. There he preached the gospel to the lost there. So a humbling situation led to a gospel opportunity. The Galatians accepted Paul despite his unhealthy and maybe even unsightly appearance. They did not injure him at all. They did not despise him. They did not reject him. On the contrary, they welcomed him as an angel of God. To them, it was as if Jesus himself was in their midst. They enjoyed the blessings of having a humble and frankly humbled preacher of Christ with them. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. They would have given anything to Paul, keys to their homes, shirt off their backs, and yes, eyes out of their sockets. So there are some parallels with Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians. Like them, the Galatians welcomed Paul's message, not as the word of men, but as it is in the truth, the word of God. But Paul was well pleased to impart to them not only the gospel of God, but also his own life, because they had become dear to him. So initially, The Galatians were unashamed of the gospel of Christ. They were unashamed of the servant of Christ, Paul. But over time, the Galatians gave their hearts to someone else. They strayed from the one who preaches the gospel to those who pervert the gospel. The apostle to the Gentiles once received as an angel of God and the embodiment of Christ has become the enemy. And he's preaching the truth that sets them free. And the Judaizers, the troublemakers, and the false teachers have become their friends. They're preaching lies, holding them hostage to legalism. This is worse than Stockholm Syndrome. Solution. Listen and follow those who humbly preach the gospel of Christ. 
Obviously, we have the example of Paul, but we also need real-life examples today. These are the people who would say, like Paul, become like me, for I became like you. I will step out of my comfort zone to win you to Christ. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. If I boast, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Stay away from those who exalt themselves and enslave you to lies. If the Judaizers were honest, they'd say this, become like me because I'll never become like you. I'll never stoop to your level. Y'all are second-class citizens in the kingdom. Get up to our level, adhere to the works of the law, get circumcised, observe the Sabbath, and just maybe, just maybe you can become like us. Now, of course, they wouldn't use those words exactly. They'd hide their true intentions, use flattery, empty compliments to sell themselves. They've entered a sheepfold as wolves in sheep's clothing. Now they pull the wool over the eyes of the Galatians. And here comes Paul, the truth-telling shepherd, who's going to chase the predators away. And that leads us to verse 17 and the second safeguard principle. Encourage consistent zeal for conformity to Christ. So one of the reasons the Galatians were drawn away from the truth was that these false teachers were very passionate. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul was passionate too. But he didn't have some charismatic appeal or some magnetic aura around him when he spoke in public. In fact, some have said this about him in 2 Corinthians 10.10. For his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Imagine seeing that on a Google review. And if that's Paul's rating when he's healthy... How bad was it when he was severely sick among the Galatians? We're all drawn to passionate speakers, aren't we? You feel the excitement and buzz from the stage traveling through the audience. But we need to be careful. Don't just listen to how someone speaks. Listen to what they say. About a century ago, there lived a man of influence. He moved an entire nation to action in the world stage with his energy and persuasive words. Here's what he said. Quote, I know that men are won over less by the written than by the spoken word. That every great movement on this earth owes its growth to great orators and not to great writers. End quote. Now, if you like this quote, here's the source. Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf. Needless to say, we need to keep our brains engaged and discern the contents, even if our hearts are riveted by the delivery. It's not that truth and zeal are mutually exclusive. I'm not trying to excuse myself, as I sometimes do have trouble with my delivery. I should be working on both. But if I absolutely have to choose one, 
If you absolutely have to choose one, choose substance over style. If you ever move out of this area and find yourself having to choose a church, choose the one that values God's word more than the speaker. And Paul knew that once you looked beyond the zeal of the false teachers, there was ill intention. They zealously court the Galatians, but for no good. Predators plan to groom them and lure them away from safety so that in the end, they're zealous for them. Paul exposes the strategy of divide and conquer. And the apostle not only blames those deceivers, in verse 18, he also blames the Galatians for this. They fail to maintain, keep up, stay vigilant. They fail to be consistent. They lack the consistency. And that lack of consistency led Paul to remind them, it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. For them, it was out of sight, out of mind. Galatians were immature. They needed their spiritual father to hold their hand like children and do everything with them and for them. Now, Ira and I enjoy being with our child, teaching basic life principles. But it's our hope later that when he departs from us, he'll continue to make right decisions and do the right things. Isn't that what every parent wants? So now Paul has to play the adult in the room, be the adult in the room, play the role of a parent all over again. Verse 19 is an interesting mix of metaphors. He's in one sense a spiritual father, as he did with the Galatians. Paul has begotten the Galatians, I mean the Corinthians. Paul has begotten the Galatians through his gospel preaching. So he addresses them as my spirit of little children. He wags the finger and instructs them to behave when he's not home. But then Paul also has to play the role of a mother. And here is not the role of a nursing mother as he was with the Thessalonians, is the role of a mother in labor. The labor here in verse 19 is not the labor in verse 11. It's the birth pangs, the pains associated with childbirth. Of course, Paul, being a man like myself, would never truly understand this pain experientially, even if he tried. We're human. We're not seahorses. You know, male seahorses go through pregnancy, not female. Men, thank God, we're not seahorses. But the apostle's willing to go through such suffering if that's what it takes for someone to get the gospel right. He laid the groundwork for the gospel before, and with the Galatians, it's as if he has to do it all over again. He'll go through all this labor all over again to make sure there's evidence of Christ-likeness in them. All professing Christians must heed this warning. If we don't start to look like Christ over time, if we're not being conformed to the image of God's Son, there's reasons to doubt whether one's saved. I'm not saying anyone can be perfect on this side of eternity. I'm not saying God doesn't love you as you are. I'm just stating the facts 
God the Father wouldn't leave you as you are if you're legitimate children. The Father will prune the branch to bear more fruit. Over time, you and others around you observe you and grow confident concerning you and your faith. They be assured that Christ is in you. Paul doesn't have much assurance about the Galatians at this point. He's so concerned that he wants to be there and tell them to stop sympathizing with the Judaizers. He knows that there's limitation in the written medium. There are feelings and intonations and nuances that cannot be easily communicated. It's not like he he had emoticons and memes. The best solution for him is to be there with them face to face and relieve those doubts. Now for some applications. What will it take for us to have a consistent zeal or conformity to Christ? Let's return and reread the first part of verse 18. It is good to be zealous in a good thing. Now when we say a good thing, what comes to mind? How do you define it? Do you know what's good for you? And are you zealous for it? Here's what I say. We won't go wrong as a church and as individuals if we're zealous for the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is better than any other good thing you can think of. I believe this is what Paul wanted for the Galatians. And that's what we need as well. It's possible for us to be zealous for lesser things. Money, career, patriotism, family, friendships. Those are no doubt good things, but not ultimately the best things. We need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. When it comes to our mission on earth, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Make sure that the gospel is that main thing. The good news is the good thing we should be most passionate about. So don't get into endless debates on social media about the politics of this world. Don't get riled up about the visual aesthetics of this room, the stained glass windows and the pews. Don't lose sleep over how things used to be here with organs, choirs, and orchestra. Be excited most about the good news. If Christ is formed in us, and if we imitate those who follow Christ like Paul, we'll have to open our mouths to talk about the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Paul did too. We have to do the same if we're going to continue as a local church beyond our 65 years. We must know the gospel and communicate it with zeal. For those listening who don't know what the good news is all about, please listen. God created us in his image to enjoy him forever, but we turned away from him 
choosing our will over his. We've broken God's holy commands, sinning in thought, word, and deed. We rejected God's truths and made enemies of those who tell us the truth. We've been inconsistent in our pursuit of the good. As a result, we deserve nothing but hell, eternal separation from the Lord. Christ, the Son of God, came to us as human to save us from our sins. He was crucified in weakness, but the weakness of God is stronger than men. After taking our place on the cross, dying to pay the eternal penalty of our sin as our substitute, Jesus now lives by the power of God. And we too can live with him in glory when he returns. If you want Christ to live in you now, repent and believe. Turn from your sin and self-righteousness, your zeal and your works. Turn to Christ by faith. There's nothing we can do to earn a place in heaven. It's all grace through faith alone and Christ alone. This is the gospel of Jesus. When it comes to being zealous for a good thing, there's nothing like the good news. A question as we finish. Can we be zealous about the good news always? What will happen when you leave this place? Leave the presence of fellow saints? Will you have the passion for the gospel as you go to school, work, home? Is it only when I'm with you, when your Sunday school teacher's with you, when you're sharing with your small group? Can we evangelize now that the Simonaires are not here? Rich Harrison's back at his church. Can we be zealous for the good news of Jesus always? Such zeal won't come from us, our flesh. We need the Lord's help. So let's make this next song our prayer. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Our salvation is secure not because of our effort, but because of the works of your Son. But Lord, because of our sin nature, our continual struggle with sin, Lord, we do sometimes fail and we stray away. We thank you that you don't give up on us. And Lord, you give us your word, first of all, so that we're not lost. We can always turn to your word so readily available for us. And we see in it apostles like Paul setting up good example. Help us to find good role models for our faith. Or help us to be good role models of our faith to others. And Lord, help us to be consistent. We know that the gospel must be, it's not something we just hear years ago during an altar call or at the moment of salvation, is something that we return to even as mature believers. 
remind ourselves and tell others the same, to grow deep in it, to bear fruit from it. So we pray that you would help us to be consistent in our zeal. May Christ be formed in us in a way that others can see. They can see that we are your uh, disciples. We are your lights in this world. Thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.